Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 193, covering the week of October 28th through November 1st, 2019. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute, like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute, and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You can find all those social media buttons at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, just click on all those buttons. If you don't want to search for them yourself, while you're there, give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook. You'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. Also, remember that on that abbevilleinstitute.org page, you have our Amazon Smile button. So if you want to contribute to the Institute while you're shopping at Amazon, it is completely painless. Just click on that. We become your preferred nonprofit organization. We get a few pennies when you do shop at Amazon. So you win, we win. It's a great way to support the Institute. You also have that support tab at abbevilleinstitute.org. Click on that. You can donate monthly, annually, or give a one-time gift, and it is tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. So if you like what we do, if you like our podcast, our website, our conferences, all the things that we do, much of it for uh, no charge, you can click that donate tab and give us a few bucks. Um, also, while you're there, click on that uh, support tab, and there's a little shop uh, button that comes up. So click on that. And you get your Abbeville Institute apparel, embroidered apparel. It's real nice stuff. Hats, t-shirts, golf shirts, golf towels, a lot of great stuff. And don't forget to download our free mobile app where you can get the Abbeville Institute on the go. So if you go to your app store, whether it's Google Play or um, iTunes, you click on that uh, click on that app store, search for Abbeville Institute, and the app will come up again free of charge so you can get the Abbeville Institute on the go. You get this podcast. You also get all of our lectures, over 200 of those, again, free of charge. And, of course, a mobile access to the website. So lots of great stuff out there, lots of great ways to support the Institute. Also, just share our material around on social media. If you're on Facebook, Twitter, uh, make sure you uh, get our articles and share those around our podcast. It's a great way to support the Institute by spreading our message and getting people to see what we do. Also, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, if you listen to this. Um, that way, more and more people will also see the podcast and listen to it as well. So all those things you can do to support us, again, for no charge, and help us explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Okay, so let's talk about the material for the week. Um, this is an, an interesting week. We had a couple of uh, papers that were a little more academic, um, and then a long book review. And I'm going to start with a book review this week because it's a subject near and dear to my heart. Um, and this book by um, Wright, last name Wright, uh, The Secession Movement in the Middle States. Um, it's a wonderful book. Uh, William Wright wrote it. Um, it's a wonderful book. I used it quite a bit when I was writing my dissertation in 2006. Um, at least for a part of the book. Um, and the photograph at the top of the article is of, of James A. Byard the Younger, now often called James A. Byard Jr., but he never was officially James A. Byard Jr. Um, he was always just James A. Byard, so uh, his father is also James A. Byard, um, and neither one was senior or junior legally, so um, it's actually more accurate to call him James A. Byard the Younger, um, not James A. Byard Jr., but... Regardless, James A. Byard is uh, one of the more interesting members of the United States Senate of the 1860s um, and 1850s. I wrote my dissertation on him. Um, it was uh, 
written for Clyde Wilson there at South Carolina. And uh, one of these days, I'll probably work on getting it published at an academic press or something like that. But um, it is, his story is really interesting. Um, and it fits nicely with this subject of the secession movement in the Middle States. So what William Wright did in this book is go back and look at states like Delaware and New Jersey, um, uh, Maryland, uh, these states that are often called the middle states, and was there a substantial secession movement in any of these states? He also focused, he also talked about Pennsylvania and New York. Um, so not just slave states, but also free states. And what he found in each one is that there was a substantial secession movement, at least among some of the population in each one of these states. Uh, the state of Pennsylvania, and I'll go, I'm, I'm going to talk about Delaware in a second, but the state of Pennsylvania actually had a sizable Copperhead population, and one of Clyde Wilson's other students, Scott Trask, wrote uh, a series of essays that um, the Abbeville Institute uh, published about these, at least one segment of these Pennsylvania Copperheads. We published them uh, way back, I want to say 2015, maybe 2016, I can't remember the exact date, but um, it's a series of essays on that subject. And so this is, a, this is a fascinating topic. How did Northerners respond to secession? What did they think about it? Um, and, were they, and what about in the border states? So Maryland and Delaware, of course, are both slave states in 1861, in 1860, when the secession crisis takes place. So uh, how do they respond? I mean, if this is all about slavery, how do these, how do these slave states respond to the issue? And it also, what people don't realize is New Jersey was, fund was essentially a slave state in 1861. It had not yet completely abolished slavery. There were slaves in New Jersey until December of 1865. But I want to talk about Delaware. Um, now, I grew up for much of my life in Delaware, um, and um, it's South Carolina considered it one of the 15 states that, uh, of, uh, that was on their secession banner. It was actually uh, one, of the, one of these states. If you look at their secession banner, there's a, it's an arch. And Delaware is one of the blocks in that arch. And, of course, people immediately say, well, then that just proves it's all about slavery. But Delaware had about 2,000 slaves in 1861. Um, and most of those slaves were, I mean, they, they had very few large, when I say large, you're talking, I think the largest slave owner in the state had like, uh, you know, less than 20 slaves. I can't remember the exact amount. And, by the way, that slave owner was a Republican. Um, which is interesting because during the war, when Lincoln was floating his emancipation plan, his compensated emancipation plan, he uh, discussed it with George Fisher, who was the represent Republican representative from Delaware. Uh, he was elected in 1860. And um, that uh, he, um, Fisher was in contact with this large slave owner in Delaware, this Republican, and that Republican told Lincoln what it would take to, to free the slaves with compensated emancipation. Lincoln then looked at the numbers. Some other Republicans looked at the numbers. And these other Republicans essentially said, no way, we're not doing it because it's going to be too expensive. So Delaware was at the front lines of Lincoln's compensated emancipation plan, which Lincoln would have done, I think. I think that Lincoln 
for all the things that Lincoln was not, I think that he was a realist in this way and saying, well, look, I mean, there's no way that you can just simply wipe out an economic institution. You're going to make these people destitute. And so he was willing to pay them to get rid of slavery, which um, a lot of people don't realize. But Lincoln was willing to do that. So James A. Byard is in the Senate in 1861 during secession winter. In fact, he travels to the South uh, before Sumter. He's in Alabama, and he's writing from Alabama uh, during that time. And he's telling his son that, look, uh, if, this, if this doesn't get any better, we've got to leave the Union. Uh, his son is Thomas Francis Byard. Thomas Francis Byard later became Secretary of State, Ambassador to Great Britain, United States Senator. And Thomas Francis Byard was arrested during the war for having a pro-Southern militia company. Um, so this is that's an interesting part of it. And there's a, a very uh, long exchange after, after Thomas Francis Byard was arrested between Byard and the military authorities trying to figure out what's going on. James Byard and the military authorities trying to figure out what's going on. There's so much meat behind James Byard, and the speeches he made are just fantastic. He made uh, one entitled Executive Usurpation, where he really just ripped apart Lincoln and what he was doing during the war. Um, and many of the speeches he made during the war were, uh, were top-notch uh, in terms of opposition. Uh, and Byard resigned from the Senate in 1864, rather than continue with a group of what he called reptiles. Um, so he was an ardent anti-war Democrat. Um, was not a slave owner. His father, James A. Byard, the elder, participated in the uh, proceedings that led to the Treaty of Ghent at the end of the War of 1812. Um, he was instrumental in swinging the 1800 election to Thomas Jefferson, in fact, he was the one that orchestrated the move. He was a Federalist. He was an old Federalist. Uh, in fact, he once said that uh, one of his opponents was more people tech than he was. Uh, James A. Byard uh, was a likable guy, but he just was not interested in campaigning. In fact, neither was James A. Byard the Younger. Um, he didn't think he actually said at one point, if I have to go out and physically campaign for this job as U.S. Senator, the candle's not worth the wax. He didn't want to do it. He just wanted to be appointed by the state, which he was at that time. Senators were appointed by the state legislators. Legislatures. Uh, he didn't really care about campaigning. Um, and his son, of course, same thing. And then his grandson, Thomas Francis Byard Jr., uh, was in the Senate as well during the early 20th century. Um, and Thomas Francis Byard Jr. was opposed to uh, the 19th Amendment, uh, so, which is interesting because one of his uh, relatives was an ardent suffragist. So, I mean, you've got this very interesting family. And, of course, Bassett, uh, James A. Byard the Younger, married uh, a, a, uh, into a family, a very prominent political family. And um, the, uh, so did his father, James A. Byard the Elder, uh, married into uh, a family that uh, had counted among them the, a signatory to the United States Constitution. So this is an important family. And here they are opposing the war. Here they are opposing Lincoln's involvement. In it. When, uh, when one of Byard's uh, relatives decided to join the Union Army, he said he's engaging in a war essentially for extermination. He wrote him a letter saying, this is disappointing to me that you're actually going to sign up and fight for the Union Army. 
Um, he said that if uh, if Delaware, James A. Byer, the younger, said that if Delaware, uh, <laughs> if if Maryland uh, seceded and Virginia seceded, then we know where Delaware has to go. They have to secede. And if they don't, then Delaware is no home for me. Um, so he thought that civil liberties were better protected in the South. He counted among his friends uh, Judah P. Benjamin and Jefferson Davis when Davis was imprisoned after the war. Uh, Byard spent a, a, a fair amount of time with Jefferson Davis. Um, so uh, Byard is a really interesting guy. Um, and he's that one of those people that uh, we often overlook when we talk about the war. And uh, even people that have talked about Byard get him wrong most of the time. Now, I don't think Wright does. I think Wright does a pretty good job with Delaware and the secession sentiment in Delaware. It was fairly strong. In fact, James Byard thought that uh, the uh, legislature, which voted to reject calling a secession convention, was not the true representation of the state. The governor at the time, when, when secession winter began, Governor Burton, um, was certainly interested in... Um, in uh, perhaps calling a convention, uh, but it didn't happen. So you have this complexity uh, in these border states um, that uh, is often overlooked. You know, Delaware is well; it was just a, a unionist stronghold. I mean, this is often how it's. Uh, it's often how it was portrayed. Um, but it wasn't. In fact, I mean, uh, uh, Vito Musumeli, who wrote this review, quotes some of the phrases from Governor Burton. Um, he said, uh, now, of course, uh, there were secession uh, commissioners sent to Delaware. And uh, the uh, Thomas Dew book, that uh, Apostles of Disunion, that's become you know a hot book among the establishment because supposedly it says that this is all about race and slavery. Um, that the secession con con uh, commissioners to Delaware didn't really talk about slavery at all. Right? I mean, so if it's all about slavery, these people are just talking about, they ignore Delaware. Because what these people were doing was often crafting their message to the state in which they were going and what they thought would resonate in those states. And they didn't talk about slavery at all. Um, Burton, as he points out, Burton in his annual message in 1861 said, some of these states referring to New England and the North have either forgotten or willfully violate their constitutional obligations and fraternal duties toward each and every of the co-equal sovereignties that compose the United States. Um, he blamed, uh, Burton blamed anti-slavery fanaticism for bringing on the war. Um, and he said that was that was the cause. So, I mean, when you look at this, yeah, there are people talking about slavery as the cause of the war. Uh, James Byard himself said that, well, I mean, this is an assault on millions of dollars of property, which is why uh, Southerners, he thought, were leaving the Union. So there's diversity of opinion even here. I mean, what caused the war? What caused secession? But it's important to note that it was not necessary. These border states were not bastions of unionist sentiment, that there were people in these states that thought that uh, slavery, I uh, thought that, excuse me, secession was a justifiable move. 
Um, so um, I like this piece because it gets into that. And of course, Maryland, uh, the uh, one of the individuals I worked with during my time in college is named uh, Bart Talbert. Bart Talbert still teaches at Salisbury University in Maryland. And he wrote a wonderful book on Maryland and the war entitled The South's First, Ca- First Casualty. Now, it's hard to get a copy. But if you can find one, I highly recommend picking up that book. It's one of the best books ever written on a quote-unquote border state during the war, the South's first casualty, Maryland. Uh, and it is, uh, I mean, look, uh, we, we used to, when I was writing my, uh, my uh, uh, senior thesis, I focused on Delaware, and uh, one, of the, uh, one of my friends said, well, you should call it the South's real first casualty, but it wasn't. Of course, Delaware is not even close. But Maryland and the occupation of Maryland and the problems in Maryland um, were uh, certainly um, interesting in that the, the people that were, t- were participating in the anti-Lincoln activities, many of them were uh, you know, descendants of patriots from Maryland during the American War for Independence. Uh, you know, Francis Scott Key um, and uh, others uh, had... Uh, uh, descendants who, of course, were pro-secession. So uh, Maryland is a great example of activities by the Republican Party and the Unionists to crush any type of secession sentiment because Lincoln well knew that if Maryland leaves the Union, well, you've got real problems because now Washington, D.C. is completely surrounded by two Confederate states. So he was doing everything he could to keep Maryland in the Union. And that's a nice little segue to our Friday piece, in fact, which is Driving Through Southern Maryland uh, by Brett Moffat. Brett Moffat does these travel pieces, and they're wonderful. Um, it's a little change of pace, something different, not political um, at all. Uh, and um, when I say political, of course, talking about uh, you know historical issues related to politics and other things. Um, and it's a it's a nice little discussion of some great sights to see in Maryland. If you've uh, he's done these for Virginia, he'll do more. In fact, he's going to focus on uh, much of the South through through over time as he does these travel pieces. I can't talk about them. I've actually learned some things, and I grew up around this region, you know, uh, the Tidewater area of Virginia and Maryland and Delmarva Peninsula and Delaware. I grew up in all that area, but there's things that he's talked about that I I didn't know that were there. Um, and so he does a wonderful job of bringing out these little historical nuggets of these these off-the-beaten-path places that you might want to go travel and see. Uh, of course, when you talk about the Eastern Shore, uh, one of my favorite constitutional scholars uh, was from Virginia's Eastern Shore. That's Abel Upshur. A lot of people don't realize that, but Upshur was from Virginia's Eastern Shore. He wasn't from uh, the Tidewater region or another part of the state. He was from the Eastern Shore. And uh, the Eastern Shore is often overlooked when you talk about uh, Maryland and, and Virginia, and of course Delaware is part of the Delmarva Peninsula. Um, so you've got this very wonderful uh, area, region of this. Southern Delaware is further south than uh, a lot of Virginia. I mean, it's further down the Mason-Dixon line, below the Mason-Dixon line, than a lot of Northern Virginia. So uh, it is a, a wonderful area to talk about. Uh, what's interesting enough, just going back to Delaware for a second, the, the, ardent, the most ardent secession area of Delaware was actually the northern part of the state in Newcastle County, right around Wilmington. That's where the Byards were. You had a lot of secession sentiment in Wilmington, which is essentially now a suburb of Philadelphia. 
But at the time, um, you had a lot of people in, in Newcastle County who were against the war and, uh, and pro-secession uh, before it was impossible for Delaware to secede. Once Maryland didn't go, uh, Delaware couldn't secede. Uh, and of course, Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia had a pretty strong secessionist sentiment too. So I, I love these little travel pieces because he brings out some, again, interesting little nuggets, uh, little things to go see, little places to go uh, and and uh, visit. Uh, and so, again, a nice little change of pace. It's not it's fun to uh, to talk about things other than uh, how bad the Republicans are, the Lincoln administration, or how uh, how bad things are in, in modern life, uh, and if the South could have just done this or that. Uh, it's fun to, to just talk about uh, what makes the South unique. And uh, in that way, I think uh, Brett does a good job with these things. So um, again, this piece, Friday's Driving Through Southern Maryland. Uh, and then uh, we have a couple of other interesting pieces this week. First, and these two pieces kind of go together, uh, the Monday piece and the Thursday piece. The Monday piece by Boyd Cathy, what uh, Jefferson Davis would uh, tell us today and why it matters. Uh, he's referencing an essay we published a long time ago on the Abbeville Institute uh, in 2014, right around the time that we launched the website. Um, and this is when the Abbeville Review was not focused on just book reviews, but we were doing other things with it. Now it's exclusively for book reviews. Um, but we are publishing more academic pieces, longer uh, longer essays on the review. And uh, we published an essay by Jefferson Davis written in 1890. Of course, he was dead. It was published after his death in the North American Review, uh, which is entitled The Doctrine of States' Rights. And so Boyd read this and he said, you know, there's more to this than just a discussion of the war and secession. Davis is a constitutional scholar, and he well understood the ramifications of the war and what it meant for the future of the United States. You see, as these Southerners looked back 20 years after the war was over, and they could, they could meditate on the issues and the results of the war— they realized, and many did too, not just Southerners, but also astute Northerners, realized what was really lost in that war. And that was any type of resistance to the central authority, any type of real resistance to the central authority ever working out. Because you see, once secession was crushed, once it became impossible for the states to oppose a central authority, there was nothing that was ever going to stop the central authority from doing anything it wanted. And then, of course, you get the Supreme Court involved later on and all the things that it can do, which are not part of its constitutional powers. I mean, the, the idea that the Supreme Court can invalidate state laws uh, just because it wants to. I mean, this is something that even John Marshall said wouldn't happen, and John Marshall was against. The only time Marshall said that you can invalidate a state laws if it violated article of a state violated article 1 section 9 of the constitution. There's very few things there that the states are prohibited from doing. So all other powers are delegated to the states, but now that's not the case. Essentially the general government has a federal negative over state law. If that had been well it was proposed in the Philadelphia Convention. If that had actually been added to the constitution, the constitution never would have been ratified. 
This is very clear by reading the debates of the Philadelphia Convention. In fact, it wouldn't have made it out of Philadelphia. And if it had had and it had gone to the states, it would not have been ratified. So what Davis is saying in this is, look, we've lost so much by the defeat of the South in this war. And one of the things I think people don't realize, and this actually gets back to that piece on Tuesday, is that the Republicans were in the minority. If you put all of the people together in the United States, and not just, of course, the South that seceded, this is one of the reasons why people were in the South. The opponents of secession in the South are saying, this is going to be a bad move. If we leave the Union, it's a bad move because um, we're going to actually undermine our position by doing so. I mean, we can talk about whether secession was a good move in 1860 and 61 or not. Whether it was legal, I mean, is, is unquestionable. And I know people say, well, you, I mean, uh, Alan Gelzo will stand up and say, well, you'll lose the argument. No, we won't. It's unquestionable that secession was legal. But there's, there's really no debate if you understand the Constitution as ratified. There's no debate that secession was perfectly legal. In fact, if it wasn't, Northerners wouldn't have started talking about it as early as 1794. Right? I mean, it's, it's clear that the founding generation thought it was not only uh, legal, but also highly possible. Now, they didn't, they didn't think it was a good idea, many of them. Uh, but they understood that it was completely possible, that there was nothing legally barring secession. So uh, that's something that most people don't realize. But um, the founding generation would not have ratified the Constitution if they thought that the uh, that the general government could negate a state law. And frankly, they probably wouldn't have ratified the Constitution if they thought the Supreme Court was going to do what it does today. Now, there were those that believed in judicial review for federal laws, but not state laws. Right. So even, even John Marshall said, well, I, I can't invalidate a state law based on the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights doesn't apply to the states, only to the central authority. Here's John Marshall, the most ardent nationalist uh, one of the most ardent nationalists in the United States, I mean, maybe next to James Wilson or Governor Morris or Alexander Hamilton. But uh, Marshall said, well, you can't, you can't use the Bill of Rights and apply that to the states. It just doesn't. He made that very clear in Barron v. Baltimore. So uh, I, I like this piece because it points out that Davis had a lot to say, not just about the war itself, but about the ramifications of the war, long-term for the United States. Davis was one of the most important Americans outside of being the fact that he was the president of the Confederacy, but one of the most important Americans even before that. I mean, here's a man that was Secretary of War. Uh, he was instrumental in uh, getting the U.S. Capitol refurbished. Uh, in building up the U.S. Army. Um, this is an important guy. He's, he's the son-in-law of President Zachary Taylor. Served in the United States, went to West Point, served in the United States military, served in the Mexican War. I mean, he's he's an important individual and a moderate. And a moderate. That's one thing. Davis was a moderate. He wasn't a pro-secessionist before Mississippi left the Union. Um, so... Um, I like this piece because I think uh, Dr. Kathy does a nice job pointing out why Jefferson Davis is important for us today and why we should all pay attention to him. And then uh, the last couple of pieces quickly. 
Um, that works into the piece on Thursday, how Yankees fostered Southern disease. This is an interesting piece. It's by Van Brosman. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, Boseman, Van Boseman, not Brosman, Boseman. Um, and he points out that one of the things that's often overlooked, one of the, one of the, one of the, uh, side effects of this total war tactics of these, these, uh, by the Union Army, and that is, uh, getting salt, um, making salt contraband. So the South didn't have enough salt. With the salt they did have, they would use um, to preserve meat, and they could not tan leather then. And so because they couldn't tan leather, they didn't have a lot of shoes. And because they didn't have a lot of shoes, these people went barefoot. And because you had uh, hookworm in certain parts, once you started having this, if you got any hookworm infestation, um, that would cause major problems for Southerners. And so he concludes, he says, the symptom of, del of delusion common to hookworm, pellagra, malaria, and starvation led to confused diagnosis while contributing to a long-standing belief that Southern distinctiveness includes laziness, apathy, and dim-wittedness. He says there's a reason why Southerners might have had some issues with uh, you know, mental capacity because of disease, which was brought on by essentially the war. So the war and Sherman's decision to keep salt out of the South was an inhumane and very destructive move for the Southern people. The, not just soldiers, but we're talking about women and children. And, uh, and white and black, it, it didn't, I mean, these things didn't discriminate. Hookworm didn't discriminate. Malaria and starvation didn't discriminate. Right? So this was a war crime, essentially, is what he's saying. Um, and that led to the perception that, well, Southerners are lazy and stupid because they're malnourished. And they've got hookworm. Uh, which is an I mean, once you get hookworm, uh, that creates mental problems. What 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 uh, doctors have figured out in the last uh, last half century, hookworm creates mental issues. Um, and of course, mar malaria causes lethargy and other things. I mean, this is a real issue. So it was disease more than anything else. That caused that, well, these Southerners are just stupid. And that disease was fostered by Yankees. So this is a really interesting piece. It's actually a condensed version. He sent me the original version. It was a extremely long piece. And I said, look, if you can cut this down, just get to the heart of the issue. And he, he still kept the meat intact by and, and kept the conclusion as strong as it was. And, of course, we've talked a lot about Reconstruction and how that affected Southerners. But there were other things going on there, he said. And he wrote me an email a long uh, while back saying, well, you know, it's not just as simple to blame Reconstruction on this. There's other things going on here. Um, so and, and this and it has a lot to do with disease and the problems of disease in the South and how that led to some issues, some health issues, of course, ultimately, and what those health issues did for Southerners. Not good stuff. Not good stuff. And finally, the piece on Wednesday, California, the Chinese and nullification. It's a little essay, um, 
And the focus of this essay is California and how they use nullification or not didn't use nullification um, and the Republican Party, which controlled California. And it's often thought that, you know, uh, uh, the Democrats were simply um, the those that opposed the Chinese and uh, gets into this issue of Chinese Exclusion Act and how that worked and how the Republicans essentially at, during Reconstruction uh, were creating the problems of Chinese discrimination uh, in the state. It wasn't the Democrats. It was the Republican Party. Um, and, of course, issues of immigration and other things. It's an interesting piece, um, but it shows, again, that uh, these Southern principles of nullification uh, and uh, the how they were applied throughout the United States. It wasn't just the South that believed in these things. Also, northern states did it as well. They used nullification as well. So a lot of great stuff this week. Uh, but again, that that um, discussion of the secession movement in the middle states, again, is something near and dear to my heart. And it's a great topic. Uh, and I think it uh, helps explore the complexity of the war and why people supported secession or didn't support secession. Um, and uh, you know, it brings into focus some of these other areas besides... Uh, the states that actually did secede from the Union and what was going on in some of these other border regions uh, and, of course, with the quote-unquote copperheads during the war. So I hope you enjoyed uh, this week in review at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day.